Tonight will bring us to the end of Jacob's story. Not the end of Jacob's life. This is the end of Jacob as the main character in the book of Genesis. And we already saw the beginnings of it last week, but we're going to see the completion of the transition to the children of Jacob as the primary focus. And then in chapter 37, it is going to narrow a lot more down onto Joseph specifically. And the remainder of the book will be the redemption of Jacob's children. So just like we saw Isaac's story transition to Jacob and Esau, now we're going to see the same thing happening. And we've seen Jacob go through this big transformation, and we've, we've had a lot of fun, I think, going through it. And we've seen how he deceived his brother and his father and was forced to flee into the wilderness, goes out while he's there at Bethel. He meets God, which is a good place to be when you've done the wrong thing. He goes to Laban's house, his uncle, and gets married a couple times. And not always great stories, but Jacob finally gets sick of lying, deceptive, sneaky people, which is good because he himself was a lying, sneaky, deceptive person. And on his way back, he has an encounter with God where the Lord changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And he enters into the promised land and reconciles with Esau. And it was a great story. There is one final stage of this journey that we've been looking at. We've talked about how every form of change that God wants to make in you follows a similar pattern where you do something or you're exposed to something in yourself that you don't like. And in a sense, you're tossed into the wilderness. And that's where God wants to meet you and then take you into the depths of your own heart and show you the seriousness of your sin to lead you to abandon it and come back and allow him to rename you, so to speak, and give you a a new destiny, which is what the Lord does in Christ and also repeatedly through the sanctification process. But there's one final stage. After God has changed you, You've got to pass that on to the people you love. The Lord never redeems us just for our own sake. We've heard it a million times. We are blessed to be a blessing. And Jacob has to pass this on to his family. And in this passage, we're going to see Jacob will begin to lead his family, but in some respects, it is too late, which is unfortunate. And the rest of the story is going to be God pouring out his grace on that family. The spiral of these kids is going to continue until the end. And that will be the first part. Tonight we've got a lot of history, genealogy to slog through. And that is probably where we'll end up spending the majority of our time. I find it very interesting, and I will try my best to make it interesting to you as well. It's important for us to know because as we continue through the Bible, it's going to make reference to these things. So you have to be at least a little familiar with them. But the main emphasis, as far as application goes, is upon the family of Isaac, the family of Jacob. What's going to become of them? That there's tragedy here, but there's always hope, especially for us in Christ Jesus. So let's go ahead and do it. Let's start chapter 35, and we'll read the first four verses. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. All right, you remember in chapter 34, we had that tragic story that just kept getting worse. We saw Jacob's only named daughter that we are aware of, named Dinah, was abused by Shechem, a man named Shechem at the very least, probably was actually raped by Shechem. And her brothers, especially Simeon and Levi, deceived Shechem and Hamor, his father, who were trying to work out a marriage contract for Dinah, And ended up sacking the city. They killed every man in the city. They took the women and children slaves. They plundered it. And that's what they did. And Jacob, at the very end, was worried about what was going to happen next. And so chapter 35 picks up where that left off. And God says to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. You can already see the change in Jacob because no longer does he have to be accosted in a dream or wrestled down by an angel. God speaks and he listens. He's grown. And he tells him to go to Bethel or Luz as it was called then. You can see on our map 
it's not very far. It's about 20 miles south of Shechem. The land of Israel is not very large, especially not by American standards. We have such a huge country. We're used to vast distances, especially with the travel that we have. But this is 20 miles south. And Bethel is where God had met Jacob before. In chapter 28, where there was the stairway going up and down into heaven and the angels going up and down on it. And the name that Jacob gave it, Bethel, means house of God. Because he, remember, said, God was here and I didn't know it. And this is what God does. When we are in times of crisis, if you know the voice of the Lord, before when Jacob was in crisis, he needed to learn the voice of the Lord. First time God almost did what he did with Saul of Tarsus. He knocked him down and gave him a vision. The second time Jacob should have been able to listen, but God had to wrestle him down. Now he knows God's voice, and so he's able to listen. It's an important reason for us to know what it sounds like when God's speaking to us. But when we're in a time of crisis... The first thing God always does is draw us back to worship and fellowship with himself. When we're going to read through the history of Israel, when there was an invading army, when there was a plague, anything like that, the first thing God wanted to deal with was the heart of the people. Same thing with Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus wanted to speak to them and hear their faith expressed and let them know who he was. And then he would step in and help them and save them. So when we're in crisis, a lot of times we run to God and we say, God, you need to fix this. And God points to your heart and says, first, we need to fix this. Same thing when we come to God with our national sins. Lord, you've got to fix this crisis and this problem. Lord goes, first, let's take a look at your heart. And so Jacob, in his greatest act of leadership in his story, says to put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. He says, bury your idols in the ground. We've discussed this already some, that Rachel had stolen her father's gods, his household gods, which were called teraphim at this time. And he says, we're going to bury these. And it seems like it wasn't just Rachel, but there was idolatry in the house of Jacob, the house of Israel. Isn't that odd? The rings that were in their ears, it could be that these were magic charms, so to speak. This is what I read, and there's still not definitive proof on this, but it seems that these were some kind of cultic or magic things that they had, almost like you've seen in certain cultures in the Caribbean and Central America, they will tie things in their hair that are supposed to be related to some god or spirit or other. And he says, we're going to get rid of these and we're going to change our garments. There's a whole picture of purification here. We're going to get rid of the wickedness and we're going to change our clothes. And this is Jacob's final step in his journey. He has met God. He has learned his lesson. He's abandoned his old ways. He's returned home. Now he's got to pass that on to his family. And we know that God has ordained the family as the place where worship is to be taught. Malachi 2.15 said that the Lord put the spirit in the union between a husband and wife so that he might raise godly offspring. And of course, the famous passage from Deuteronomy, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And here it goes. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is the passage that we read during baby dedications as a charge to the parents to teach their children. And what I love about this passage is it's not so much sit down and give your children a formal spiritual education, although that can be important too. He says, when you're standing up, when you're sitting down, when you're walking by the way, put it on the door, put it on your forehead. Everywhere you go, the, the word of God and the, the truth of God should saturate the family. This is what Jacob is doing here. He's teaching the family to walk with God. Now, unfortunately, the family is often the last place to be sanctified. Have you noticed that? You can hold your temper with everybody except your wife. You can hold your temper with everybody except your husband or your kids. All the things that you're so good at everywhere else, you come home and and you just can't do it because we're lazy. We want to come home. We want to be around the people that we're most comfortable with and unplug, man. I don't want to have to always be on all the time. Or we're selfish. They should be taking care of me. I shouldn't have to do all this around them. That's not biblical. 
That's not what God teaches us. And sometimes we can wait too long to start teaching our children or leading our wife in the things of God. And by the time we decide we want to do it, which is going to be the case here with Reuben, I believe, that we're, we're too far gone. And, and it's difficult to do what would have been easy the first time. Or we delegate that responsibility. Ah, that's her job to teach the kids. Ah, it's his job. He, he's got to lead me. I'm not going to say anything. Ah, the, the school will handle that. Ah, they go to Sunday school. What difference does it make? They'll handle all that. Or we just don't think about it. But Jacob is setting us an example of finally taking spiritual leadership of his family. All this time, he's been worshiping the Lord as one, and yet his wives and his children, and we can assume the servants in his house as well, were worshiping all sorts of other gods. And Jacob maybe had a very modern attitude, like, listen, this is the way that I believe, but I don't want to push that on anybody else. And, you know, they've got to make their own decisions, and he was wrong to do so. And I think that this incident with Shechem, with Dinah, and with Simeon, and Levi maybe shocked him. And he was ready to listen. He goes, I don't even recognize these kids. What's happening in my house? And God goes, I'll tell you what's happening in your house. Get rid of this stuff. They're worshiping the same gods as the world. They're wearing the same earrings as the world. They got the same clothes as the world. So that's why they're acting like the world. And this is what a good father, especially, should lead his family to do. To cast off the things that the culture views as appropriate, its own idols, its own charms, yet are offensive to God. There are things that people around us will not blink at. Of course, it's fine. Who cares? But to God, they're not right. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death what is earthly in you. I love that. What is earthly? Is what is just like everybody else on the earth? Put to death what is earthly in you. And he gives some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Now, when we hear passion, don't think of romance. Think of flying off the handle. Your emotions are driving everything you do, right? Evil desire. That's one that our culture has a hard time with, isn't it? But I want to. And we, we love to wrap it up in all kinds of nice language, right? But, well, I wanted to do that. Who are you to tell me what I can't do? There are desires that are evil and you should put away. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, I'm not an idolater. Well, are you covetous? Because the Bible connects those two things. Put to death what is earthly in you. Bury your teraphim in the ground. Take the idols and get rid of them. We are not of the earth. We are of heaven. We are citizens of heaven and sojourners on the earth. What's a sojourner? It's somebody who's not a citizen. We might use like an illegal alien in a country. That's who we are to the world. You're there, but you don't belong there. You're not a citizen there. You don't have roots there. And you might not stay there very long. That's what it means. Peter says that when we live on this earth, it's like we're living in a tent. Tents are not meant to be lived in forever. You break them down and you move. He says someday you're going to put off this earthly tent. So the entertainment of the world, is it all wrong? No. But there are certain things that are producing a level of acceptance in your house that you are not going to be prepared to deal with later. And parents, let me tell you, you are an adult. You are mature. You are able to sift through the wheat and the chaff. You can watch something in a movie or online and say, all right, I know what's good and I know what's evil. And I'm going to separate the two. You might have children in your house who are not so wise. And when you teach them that, you teach them that this is what is okay. They're not going to be more careful than you. Almost always they're going to be more open than you. The philosophies of the world. Are there people that have important insights that the Bible harmonizes with? Yes, of course there are. But are we teaching our, our children? Are we together as a married couple? Are we looking to what the scripture says? Or are we looking for other people to tell us things that the Bible says is okay? Sometimes I think that's what we do. We do exactly what the world says, and then we see, is there anything the Bible says I can't do? Okay, let's get rid of that. Oh, it's so backwards. Let the Word teach you what is right. The practices of the world. There's stuff the world does that we're not supposed to do. And it's amazing, as you're watching, the world and the church are becoming more and more distant from one another. And people are getting offended by it. And there are people in the church that are used to being more or less closer to what's going on. And they think maybe we should change too. But it's not the case. We've got to bury the idols. Every one of us should be about that business. 
burying idols, putting on new garments of righteousness, and insisting that our loved ones do the same, our families, our parents, our church members with each other. Jacob knew God, but he had not yet introduced his family to God. And that changed right here. Verses 5 through 8. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, which means God of the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And verse 8, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth, which means oak of weeping or big tree of weeping, if it was not specifically an oak tree. It was a big tree. Now remember, in verse 30 of the last chapter, Jacob was afraid that the other Hivites would see what they had done to the city of Shechem and chase them down. That's just to be expected. But God delivers them out of this. They come to Luz. When Israel took possession of this land, they would rename it Bethel. And he builds another altar here, rededicating it to the Lord. God put a fear in the hearts of all these people. We're not going to mess with these people. Maybe they knew that he was connected to Abraham in some way. Maybe they knew that he was Esau's brother, who was a mighty warrior. Who knows? But it was all God. And so Jacob comes back and rededicates the site of Bethel to the Lord. And Bethel would remain a holy place in Israel until, as we see in 2 Kings and elsewhere, that Jeroboam, or sorry, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Jeroboam, after Solomon, would split the kingdom. And in order to keep the people from worshiping in Jerusalem, he would set up another temple in Bethel. That's a very holy place. This is where Jacob was. And instead of allowing them to worship at God's site, he set up two golden calves for them to come and worship there. And it's called the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is referred throughout the Bible as the one who caused Israel to sin. How'd you like that title after your name? David, the man after God's own heart. Jeroboam, the man who caused Israel to sin. After that, some of the Prophets will refer to it as Beth-Avon. So Bethel means house of God. Beth-Avon means house of futility or house of uselessness. House of idols is the idea. But for right now, it's a very holy place and it's a special place in the life of Jacob. We also have to note here, verse 8, there's going to be several tragedies that we hit in this section. But Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, died. And this is odd. Where did she come from? <laughs> uh, I don't know is the short answer. Maybe when Jacob left, Deborah went with him. It does not say. It was his mother's nurse. So we can imagine that when Rebekah came to the promised land to marry Isaac, Deborah came with her. And maybe when Jacob left, Rebekah sent Deborah to escort him and show him around and show him how to get there. It does not say. Or it could be that during the time that he was in the land of Israel, and there will be a substantial amount of time as we'll see, that Deborah had begun to travel with them. We do not see Rebecca again, and I've mentioned that before. This is as close as we come to a reunion between Jacob and Rebecca. So we will just note that and we will move on. When you decide to put away your idols and submit yourself to God, you're going to find that there is victory all around you. So many times, I feel like I keep coming back to this point lately, what we want to do is fix the problem and then we will come and worship the Lord. We will use the Lord as a vehicle to accomplish what we want to accomplish. We come to God with our list of demands and what we think needs to be done. Like the Pharisees came to Jesus. But it's not the way it goes. You have to come to God first and then the victory comes later. And that order is very, very important. You come to God first because he is God and because you are a created being broken and fallen in sin. And most of the time, the mess is a mess that we've made. God, you got to fix this. God goes, you come to me first. Which has been my passion in this incredibly political season that we've been in for the last few years. The, the single string on my guitar that I keep plucking is return unto the Lord. Because we can fix everything. But if we haven't done that, we're just going to recreate something new, something worse. We come back to God first. 
Because Romans 8.37 says that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We like to cut off the first half. I'm a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror. No, he's more than a conqueror. And he has made you to be more than a conqueror. Very, very important to get that order correct. When you put Jesus on the throne, things start to fall into place. Whether that's an external circumstance, whether that's a difficult child, or a marriage that you're trying to fix, or anything else, put God first and you will become the victor in that situation. Because very often that is the issue, that you're out of alignment with God. Have you ever had an illness where you go to the doctor and they, they're treating the symptoms, but they keep coming back and they don't know what the problem is? And then they find out there was something very deeply rooted at the bottom of your, of your body that was not right. And then when they fix that, it clears right up. It's like that with your spirit and your life. You get Jesus on the throne first. And it is a mistake, I will say, for this reason, not to push each other to worship the Lord, especially our kids. I was a youth pastor. Drove me crazy. Well, I don't want to make them go to church. Why not? Well, because I don't want them to resent God. Okay, you make them go to school, though. You make them brush their teeth. Make them tie their shoes. You make them do all sorts of things they don't want to do. You insist that they do their homework. Have you read your Bible? I don't want to read it today. Okay, we'll, we'll get it later. Introduce them to God. Well, I just don't want to force them to be religious. Then don't. Introduce them to Jesus. Bring them to the Lord. This is what Jacob did. He brought them to the altar and taught them to worship his God. Bring your family to the Lord. And everything will start to come together. does not mean that the circumstances will necessarily change. But at the very least, God will make you the kind of person who is able to bravely face those circumstances. Verses 9 through 15. While they're at Bethel. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Yaakov. Jacob, it means heel catcher. But no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Yisrael. Wrestled with God shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai. God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So this is a very significant passage. This is where God, and the name he uses for himself, as he has many times in the book of Genesis, is El, which means God, Shaddai, which means Almighty. God Almighty. God All-Powerful. He renews the covenant with Jacob. Now all three of the patriarchs, were given the covenant, given the promise early in their lives, but all three of them at the end of their story in Genesis have a moment where God renewed and reaffirmed the covenant to them. For Abraham, it happened when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. That's when God affirmed the covenant to him. With Isaac, it was when he fled from Abimelech in Gerar where the wells had been all stopped up and he went back to his father's land and Redug the wells that Abraham had dug, that's when God reaffirmed the blessing. And for Jacob now, it's after his long sojourn and coming home. He had been given the blessing the first time he went to Bethel. He had been renamed when he came back into the promised land. But now God is saying, absolutely, I'm confirming everything that I've done for you. That's what our salvation is like in a lot of ways, isn't it? You have that initial moment, but you also have moments along the way where God reaffirms what he's doing. And, and it feels like after those moments, you're never quite the same. So he reaffirms the name change, his land, and the blessing upon his life as well. Kings shall come from you. Not least of all, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. This is the true end of Jacob's journey. He's back to where God promised to bring him in 28-22. Back in chapter 28, Jacob said, Lord, if you bless me and you bring me back to my land, I will worship you here at Bethel. And he's finally returned. 
I love that when we reaffirm our worship of God, he does not make us start over. Don't you love that? He picks up where we left off. He says, now where were we? God is not stingy to us. Jacob had a covenant with God, but so do you. You have a new covenant in Christ Jesus. A better covenant, the book of Hebrews says. Because you have a better sacrifice, a better priest. Jesus didn't have to come back more than once to offer sacrifice for sins. Once for all was enough. He himself intercedes for you. And he desires to bless you, not just with the eternal life that he's promised, but all the blessings of the covenant with forgiveness and joy and peace and the power of his Holy Spirit. We've got to do what Jacob did here and stop quenching what God wants to do. We say, well, I want all those blessings. But if you're not willing to bury the idols, you're not willing to go back to Bethel, you're not willing to pick up where you left off with God, you won't have those things. I've known more people who are angry with God for not giving them joy, not giving them peace, not giving them blessing. But you talk to them and they're not walking with God. Maybe they're doing some things right, but there are a couple points that are way out of whack. And you try to tell them to fix them and they'll whine and cry and say, I can't because God won't bless me. But you have it backwards. You are resisting God. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. You pray, but then you go home and you do exactly what you prayed that God would stop you from doing. We want to abdicate responsibility and then blame God for our sin. Ooh, that's a dangerous place to be. You know what it means to follow Jesus? You know the story in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus saw Peter, James, and John, and Andrew in their boats, and there's the mighty story of bringing in all the fish that they hadn't caught the night before. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's a moment Just like with Jacob, the moment was arise and go up to Bethel. For you, you have probably had a moment like that too. But have you left your nets and followed him? Have you tried to go back to the boat and do a little more fishing? Or are you still following Jesus? He's asking you to give up the old life, to leave the nets, to die with Christ so that you can live with Christ. And then to live for Christ so that you will someday reign with Christ. This is what we've got to teach our families. Don't teach your wife, your husband, your parents, your, your kids. Sometimes you do it by accident. I don't think anybody would do it on purpose, in here anyway. Don't teach them that God's not a priority. By the first thing that gets pushed to the back is always church, devotions, ministry, whatever. Everything gets priority over God. You might know where God belongs, but you're teaching your kids or whoever That God is not a priority. Or you're teaching them that God is a killjoy. That we never are allowed to enjoy our time with God. We talk about it like it's a burden. So many pastors have done this to their kids. They're doing the work of the ministry and then they come home and they gripe and they complain about it all the time. And their moms are talking about the reason your dad's not home is because of that church. And the kid learns that it is God who is keeping him from his own father and keeping their marriage from being happy. Don't do that. Don't teach your children that God can be put off. Teach them to bow at his feet and call him Lord. That's the truth of it. That's what the church is for. We are here for worship first, not self-improvement. You can get that anywhere. We're here for worship and a new covenant. So Jacob is now in full possession of the promise that God had first made to Adam. Remember? He said, someday I will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and deal with sin. He renewed the promise to Noah. He renewed it to Abraham by making a covenant with him, specifically with him. Then that was passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob, and now Jacob is preparing to pass it on to his own sons. And you yourself are in possession of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, and you ought to be passing that on to your sons and your daughters as well. And we have the option, as Paul's taught us, to go out and have new sons and daughters in the Spirit that are not of your body, but you get the chance to bring them to Jesus and almost be a midwife for their new birth. Isn't that cool? You must be born again, and you get to be the one at that moment. Paul calls that being a spiritual father or mother or grandfather or grandmother. Pass that new covenant on. Don't keep it to yourself. Bury your idols. Get rid of the the charms of the world and change your garments for a garment of righteousness that Christ will give you. So that's our application for this section. And there will be other lessons as we go through, but 
as we come to the end of chapter 35, this is going to be mostly stories, mostly history. If you're taking notes, this is a great night to take notes. And if not, sit and listen because there's a lot of really good stuff here that's important for us to know. And uh, I think it'll also give us some examples of some apologetics things that we've discussed before. So let's read now verses 16 through 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel. We don't know how long after, but they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, which is the Bethlehem area, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So we had the tragedy of Deborah, the nurse of Rebekah, dying. The next tragedy is the death of Rachel, who dies in childbirth, which is very ironic because do you remember in chapter 30, she couldn't have children. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. And that was when she introduced Zilpah to the scene, and that was another big mess. But maybe it could be that God was trying to preserve her. It does not put any blame upon her. It's just an interesting note to see here. But she gives birth to Jacob's last son. And she tries to name him Benoni, which means son of my affliction or sorrow. It can even mean wailing or mourning, depending on the context. Ben means son, Oni E at the end, the letter I is a possessive, and then own means affliction, sorrow, and so on. And if you look at the story, the mothers named all of the children. Not quite sure why. This is the only time that Jacob is going to step in and name his son. He renames him Ben, it would be Yamin. There's no letter J in Hebrew, it would be Yamin. Son of my right hand. And this is sometimes translated son of the south because the, the south was associated with the right hand. But it's a position of strength, obviously. You can see the picture there. The Lord talks about his righteous right hand. Ben, son, Yamin, my right hand. And he will be the twelfth tribe of Israel. And imagine how heartbroken Jacob was in this moment. This is the woman that he had, the only woman he had wanted to marry in the first place who he ended up working 14 years for. But it said it only felt like a few days to him because of how much he loved her. And now she's, she's passed on. And it says that she was buried while they were some distance from Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. You maybe remember the prophecy in Micah where it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although you are small, a king will come from you. And that was Jesus. So Ephrathah, or Ephrath, as it says here, was the region, you might say the state. So you say Birmingham, Alabama, you would say Bethlehem Ephrathah. And there is some confusion surrounding Rachel's burial site. Because there are a couple passages in Scripture that at first blush seem to give contradictory information. And then there is some tradition that muddies the waters a little bit here. So First of all, we have Genesis 35, 19, which is where we are, that says Rachel was buried, and it gives us the name Bethlehem, so it would seem to say that. There is also traditionally, if you go to Israel, there is a, a site there near Bethlehem, which is the tomb of Rachel, supposedly. She was not buried in the cave of Machpelah like Abraham and Isaac and their wives. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 2, it's mentioned that Rachel's tomb is near a place called Zelzah, which we do not know where that is. <laughs> we simply do not know. But we know that it was close to Ramah, which is where Jeremiah 31.15 identifies the tomb of Rachel. That's that prophecy that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, where it said there is weeping and wailing in Ramah because Rachel is grieving for her children. So which one is this? Now, if you look at the map, down here in the south... This is Bethlehem. This is the traditional site of Rachel's burial. In between, you have Jerusalem, and then to the north is a city called Ramah. First thing I want to say before we try to work this out is it's only an 11-mile distance. 
So all things considered, it's not that far away, however you want to put this. But I think it's pretty clear. If you take the traditional site that we have today out of the equation, this resolves itself pretty neatly. Because it does not say they were in Bethlehem. Do you see that? What does it say in verse 16? When they were still some distance from Ephrath. So they're not in Bethlehem yet. They're on their way to Bethlehem. We know from 1 Samuel that Samuel's hub of ministry was a town called Ramah. And he sends the man in chapter 10 out to Zalza, which he says is in the, the borders of Benjamin near Ramah. And if you're looking at this map here, Benjamin is right here by Jerusalem and doesn't quite stretch up to Ramah, but it's close. And then Jeremiah 31, 15 says that Rachel is weeping and wailing in Ramah for her children. So this is really not a salvation issue. <laughs> it could just be that we're not as familiar with the geography as the writers were. Seems to me, though, pretty clear that she's somewhere near Ramah, but probably not right in Ramah and maybe closer to Bethlehem than we thought. But remember, the two farthest options are only 11 miles apart. So it's, it's not such a big deal. But people want to come in and say, see, the Bible is full of contradictions and you can't trust it. But whenever you break them down, they're like this. Are we 11 miles apart or less? <laughs> Which is not that big a deal. So interesting note, thought we'd move on from that. They pitch a tent beyond the Tower of Eder, which we're not also not quite sure where that is, but probably somewhere between Bethlehem and Hebron, or Mamre, as it was called then. And of course, this does not want to minimize the importance of Bethlehem. It will be very significant because David is going to be born there. Jesus Christ is going to be born there. The whole book of Ruth will take place there. And there is at least some kind of connection between Rachel and the city of Bethlehem. So, very tragic story, but we can see that the, the transition is happening from Jacob to his children. Now we get to verse 22, and we get another one of those sordid Old Testament stories. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So this is the third tragedy here. This is Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, committing incest with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Bilhah was the maidservant of Leah. Do you remember this? When Leah and Rachel had stopped having children, Rachel was, of course, having trouble conceiving at all, they both brought in maidservants like Hagar to start providing children for Jacob. And they became his concubines. That is, they were sexual partners who were not legally, officially married to one another. Bilhah was the father of Dan and Naphtali. And this is important to know that the concubines of Jacob and of the other people in the Bible were... It was a kind of legal status. We think of that as just somebody that you have shacked up with. It was much more official than that. And for all intents and purposes, Bilhah was Reuben's stepmother. It was a unique polygamous situation, but there it is. This is a grievous sin. People want to minimize this. Well, they weren't really related. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11 says that if a man lies with his father's wife... The idea being not his mother, but another of his father's wives. He has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, this law was not in effect at this point, but it expresses God's heart on this kind of thing. He has a very strong opinions about especially male relatives committing sexual acts with the same woman. Now, there's a couple ways to read this story. Was this love? Were they smitten with one another? Was this some sort of passionate affair? It is possible because Bilhah would probably have been young when she was brought into this kind of relationship. Because remember, she was supposed to be one to bear children. So you were going to bring somebody who is fertile and is of the age to have kids. So maybe she wasn't that much older than Reuben. We also know she was not especially loved by Jacob. He, he had two wives and one of them didn't feel loved. So how much more one of these is two concubines? So it could have been that there was some sort of sick romance going on between them. But I think that this may be more along the lines of what we see in the sons of David. Do you remember that Absalom, when he staged the coup against David, went onto the roof and went in and had sex with 10 of David's concubines? The point of that was not romance. It was a power play. 
It was his way of saying, I have taken the wives of my father. I have taken the role and the power of my father. Also, this is a story you maybe are not familiar with. When Jacob was a very old man and he began to be feeble and could not keep himself warm, there was a woman named Abishag who was brought into his bed to keep him warm. It says that they did not have sex with one another, but it was still a very unique kind of relationship. And Adonijah, who was David's firstborn son and heir to the throne, asked for permission to marry Abishag. And his whole point was, listen, it's not that you, like y'all did anything, and I'd like to marry her. But David recognized that for what it was, which was a power grab. His way of saying, I have taken the king's consort, shall we say. It was a power thing. So this is probably what's going on here. We have all these sons that are contending for who's going to be the one to inherit from their father. Should have been Reuben because he was firstborn, but now Rachel has had children. And we know from the story that Jacob had every intention of giving the inheritance to Joseph and not to Reuben. So this could have been Reuben's way of consolidating power, as disgusting as that was. And perhaps he seduced this woman. As I said, a sordid story. And this is as good a reminder as we need that you can do all the right things as a parent, but children are going to make their own adult decisions. And the Bible is very clear not to put the guilt of a son upon the father or the father upon the son. Proverbs 22.6 says, Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he'll not depart from it. But sin is vicious. And especially in this case, Jacob waited a long time to introduce the Lord and his righteousness into his family. Perhaps if Jacob had led his family better, this would never have happened. As I've said a thousand times, people that want to get smug and say the Bible approves of polygamy, not really. It's not working out for Jacob. It didn't work out for anybody. There is no happy story with more than one wife in the Bible. Which is why later on in the New Testament, they'll make it very clear as if Genesis chapter 2 and 3 was not clear enough, that God intended a godly man to be of one woman. And in this culture, as people are beginning to dabble in polyamory and things like that, we must be resistant against it. Now, if we were to go over to another culture where there are men who have married multiple wives, as is common in the scriptures, we would not command them to divorce those other wives, but the Bible says that that man would not be qualified for the ministry. So, this is just one of those things that happens in a fallen world that the Bible has to show us how to deal with. Reuben is going to lose his firstborn blessing for this. Simeon and Levi, who were the second and third child, are going to lose their blessing as well because they sacked the city of Shechem. And that is why it passes on to Judah. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Verse 23 now. Let's get away from that story. <laughs> now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Benjamin was born in the land of Canaan, but you get the idea. This is the first time we have an assembled list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Be a good thing to memorize, because it's going to come up a lot in the Bible, as you can imagine. And every tribe is going to have some claim to fame or other in the scripture, whether it is infamy or for a good reason. Moses will be a Levite, and the Levites, of course, will handle the matters in the temple and the tabernacle. Paul, the apostle, is of the tribe of Benjamin. Joseph will actually be split into two different tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, his two children. And when the Lord establishes the, the law with Israel, the Levites are excluded from the normal inheritance of the people because of their service to the Lord. And Joseph is given a double portion, which is the blessing that Jacob will give him at the end of this book. Dan is going to commit a sin in the book of Judges that is so grievous that they are going to be excluded from some lists of the 12 tribes. And it raises a very interesting question about, was this a permanent removal? We'll get to that story later as well. Anna, who was the old woman in the temple in the New Testament that was there to bless Jesus when he came to be dedicated, was of the tribe of Asher. 
So just about every tribe has something. And of course, Judah will become the leader of the nations of Israel. David will, of course, be of the tribe of Judah, as will Solomon. And then when the kingdom splits, it will be Judah, Benjamin, and whatever Levites were living in that land against the other tribes. And the land of Israel in the north would take on the name Ephraim because Ephraim was the primary tribe in the north. And then, of course, when Assyria comes in and takes away the ten tribes in the north, we will not see much of them again. In the book of Ezra, we read about how they had become what are called the Samaritans. They were a, an ethnically mixed people. They were no longer pure Israelite any longer. And that is why in the New Testament, there are no dealings between Jews and Samaritans. And that word Jew, you can hear it, comes from the word Judah. Because the nation of Judah, which included the tribe of Benjamin and whatever Levites were there, and a few from the rest of the tribes as well, when they were taken into exile, they picked up that name Jew because they were of the land of Judah. And so after the exile and during the books of Daniel and things like that is the first place we see those words, Jews. Jesus Christ, of course, would be the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And it's interesting because now... Today, especially, the, the Jews are very unfamiliar with which tribes they belong to for the most part. There are certain ways of knowing, but the children of Israel have been scattered. But what is amazing is that in Luke twenty two thirty, 30, Jesus said that his 12 apostles in the kingdom will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation, it says that there will be 12,000 men from each tribe saved and sealed against the judgments in the last days. So we might not be able to figure out the ethnicity of these tribes, but God has no problem with that. Aren't you glad the Lord is able to see past what we can? But you can see as we read these, this list how God is blessed. Abraham waited 100 years to have one child. Rebecca was barren and prayed until God finally gave her the twins. And even though... The parents have failed. The children are not what you would want them to be. God has brought forth his chosen people. And we're going to look at Joseph, but really past the story of Joseph, we're not going to be focusing on single patriarchs, but upon the nation of Israel itself, the 12 tribes of Israel. No longer is the covenant going to pass from one person to the next person. It's going to pass in the book of Exodus to the whole nation, all 12 tribes. Verse 27 now, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So this is the reunion between Jacob and Isaac. Isaac is still in Mamre, which later on would be the city of Hebron which is where David would rule before he was able to take the city of Jerusalem. So it's a significant site. It's where Abraham had lived by the terebinth trees. And Isaac dies at 180 years old, blessed by the Lord, buried by his twin sons, which raises some interesting questions. If Jacob left, as we think he did, when Isaac was 100 years old, and Isaac was afraid that he was going to die, Remember we talked about that, that Isaac was kind of a hypochondriac? He had 80 years left. Which means, if he was 100 when Jacob left, Jacob was gone 20 years, which we know. That means that when Jacob came back to the promised land, Isaac was 120 years old. He died at 180, which means he was able to live for 60 more years. Which is interesting, because it tells us that these characters overlapped with one another. And there's a lot of time in history that is simply not recorded when Jacob and Isaac, I'm sure, would have interacted with one another. When he and Esau would have interacted with one another. They're just not relevant to the grand narrative that the author is trying to tell us. And this brings us to the end of the story of Isaac, the promised child that Abraham had prayed for for so long. And he would be buried, it doesn't say it here, but in the cave of Machpelah that Abraham had bought from the Hittites, as was Rebekah, his wife. 
And now that one child upon whom everything rested has a legacy that is believably secure. It was always secure because God had made the promise. But now he has 12 grandchildren. And he's got a granddaughter or more. And he's got the children of Esau. You can see that God is blessing this family and this nation. And in chapter 36, we're going to talk a little bit about Esau. And we'll go a little faster through this chapter. Let's read verses 1 through 8. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaiot. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basamath bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land far away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Sounds like Abraham and Lot, doesn't it? So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. That last little three-word phrase would be important for you to underline and remember. Esau is Edom. Now, you probably caught it in verse 1 of chapter 36. We have a new Toledoth marker. Toledoth is the Hebrew word that marks divisions in the book of Genesis. It means generations, and it usually introduces some kind of genealogy, a new character, a new shift in the story. And we have here our ninth and tenth, because in the chapter 36, there are two Toledoth markers that both refer to Esau. So you can lump them together as one. The first one we saw was, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. Chapter 5, of Adam, then of Noah, then after the flood, the sons of Noah in the table of nations. Chapter 11, we focused on the generations of Shem. Then chapter 11, 27, Terah, and then Ishmael. We came back to Isaac, and now in chapter 36, verses 1 and 9, we have Esau. So we have a new division. Isaac has died. Jacob has stepped into the role of the next patriarch. And we're going to learn what happened to Esau in this chapter. And this chapter gives us a lot of detail about the Edomites. But we're not going to see Esau again. And we're not going to even see the Edomites so much, except as they relate to the nation of Israel. The book of Obadiah, for example, is written as a a prophecy against the nation of Edom. Now, here's a little issue. We see here there are three wives that Esau had. And in chapter 26, we saw the list of Esau's wives, and the names in chapter 26 are different from the names in chapter 36. I told you when we were in chapter 26, we would get into this when we got here. So here it goes. Chapter 26, we had Judith, Basamath, and Mahalath. Chapter 36, we have Adah, Aholibama, and Basamath. Now, it gets more complicated. In chapter 26, it said that Basamath was the daughter of Elon the Hittite. In chapter 36, it says that Adah, was the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Chapter 26, it said that Mahalath was the daughter of Ishmael. Chapter 36, it says that Basamath is the daughter of Ishmael. And then we have two fathers that names are totally different. One is either Zibion the Hivite or Berit the Hittite. And some people say that the Hittites and the Hivites were actually the same tribe. I don't know. That hasn't been confirmed. It's just speculation. Now, this is confusing Especially if, as you do, and as I do, we hold to a high view of Scripture, we have a belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, and then the Bible is correct in everything that it says. So how do we account for the fact that we have basically six different women here? Two of them have the same name, but they're said to come from different tribes. What's going on here? There are some options that are perfectly acceptable. For example, the Bible makes heavy use of nicknames, which sounds like a cop-out because that's not how we do it in this culture. Back then, that's what they did. Is it Jacob or Israel? Well, which is it? It's the same guy, right? Is it Esau or Edom? It's the same guy. So you could have that going on. 
It could be that Esau had more than three wives. That's entirely possible too. And that in the genealogies, it only lists certain of the wives. Maybe the others didn't have any children for him. That happens too. We know that the genealogies sometimes are condensed. Sometimes it says that he was the father of, and he actually was the grandfather of. And we get all testy about that. But in that culture, well, he was his father. He was the father of his father. So you could have something like that going on. There is the possibility that this is just a textual issue, meaning that the version of the Old Testament that has been translated here has experienced some kind of corruption in terms of its transmission. Now, you need to know this. We're not Mormons. We do not believe that there were gold plates dropped out of heaven, and it was perfectly just like that the angel handed it to him. Nor are we Muslims that believe that Muhammad went into a trance and wrote down the Quran, and that's how it's perfect. We believe that the Bible was put together, written by men, assembled by men, and that the actual text itself, over time, can be changed and corrupted. Now, here's the, here's the important thing to know. We believe that the Bible is inerrant in what we call the autographs of Scripture, meaning that when it was written down, it was entirely clear and without error. We know that over time, sometimes through writing it down in the copies over and over again, that an error is introduced. And they're usually easy to, to notice when it says that something in one version says four pounds and then the other one says 400 pounds. You know, okay, somebody added a few extra zeros. If we had the original autographs, which we don't, which is kind of the issue, right? Then we would not have any errors, we believe, because it's God's word. So what we have to do is the process of called textual criticism, which I've gotten into a lot. And I think you see in this chapter that we have, these are the generations of twice. It could be that one of the traditions that was brought together when Moses was putting this book together and writing it down, and maybe the names got confused. I don't know. But I want you to note this. This is one of very, very few issues where we are not 100% sure how to resolve it. And every time we have one of these textual critical matters in the scriptures, it never affects anything important. There are people that want to tell you the Bible is full of errors and you can't trust it and everybody knows it. But when you find things that we're not sure how they line up, it's stuff like this. He had three Canaanite wives and one of them was named Basimoth. And Elon the Hittite was the father of one of them. This is not affecting any doctrine. It's not even really affecting any history. And it is entirely possible, as I said, that there are ways of resolving this that don't even have to resort to textual criticism. There are some great resources on this that I could offer you that are worth checking out. I just wanted to draw your attention to that because it should not shake your faith. Because the doctrine is that the scriptures are inerrant in their autographs. And the process of textual criticism is analyzing the copies and the versions that we have to get as close to the original as possible. And in, I believe, F.F. Bruce said it was 98 or 99% of the time, we are 100% sure of what it should have said. So... Don't let this shake your faith. Don't let anybody come and put a finger in your face and make fun of you. We are aware of these things. There are people whose job it is to think about these things. And Jesus Christ is still Lord. So let's move on from this. He's got three wives, maybe more, and these were their names. Now Esau's nation took the name of Edom, which means red. Remember Esau was big red. And they settled in the land of Seir, which is in the south. And the land of Seir was a rocky, desolate region. We've been over this before. And Esau would become renowned. The nation of Edom would become renowned for their martial prowess. They were amazing in battle and their pride. The Lord is always rebuking in the Bible the nation of Edom for their pride. Because they thought we're living up in these rocky enclaves that nobody can get to. So who's ever going to bring us down? And then the Lord will say, I will climb up there and yank you down out of your lofty heights. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us this interesting little note that helps explain this chapter. It says that the Horites lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So Edom was to the south and a little to the east of Judah, and that is where Esau's descendants settled. They drove out a nation called the Horites. 
And the Lord gave them that land. The Lord made provision for all of Abraham's descendants, Ishmael, Esau, all of them. Because God is not just looking out for one nation. God's looking out for all nations. Aren't you glad? The Lord cares about everybody. He doesn't just care about one people. Jonah had to learn that lesson, huh? There's a long genealogy at the end here. It's broken up into parts, so I'm just going to read it and then call out the relevant bits. Verse 9. These are the generations, there we go, of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimoth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman. Teman would build a great city that would go on to become one of the capitals of Edom. Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Circle the name Amalek because they're going to be a, a thorn in the flesh of Israel. And Timnah, his mother, was one of those Horites that we're going to read about in a little bit here. So these are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. So this first one here, these are the sons of Esau, that section of the genealogy. Next section, verse 15. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So number two, these are the clan chiefs of the Edomites. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kanaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zarah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So, some of those names will come up later in the Bible. Know that they're Edomites. There's no quiz. Number three, these are not Edomites. These are the Horites that Esau drove out. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah, so Timnah was the mother of Amalek, who apparently Eliphaz had an affair with. These are the sons of Shabal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anah. He is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. You all know that story, right? These are the children of Anah. Dishon and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Haran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Za'avan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. This is important. These are the nations that were driven out by the Edomites. You would compare these to the Nations that Israel drove out in the book of Joshua. These are real people. This is why they're in here. Real history. It's not made up stories. This is real. Verse 31, we have the kings of Edom. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Yobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Yobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Midian in the country of Moab. These are the same people that Gideon fought in the book of Judges. Hadad died, and Samlah of Masrikah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. So these are the kings of Edom who reigned before Saul or David. Notice that they all have different fathers and come from different places. Interesting note. 
This was not a dynasty. It is entirely possible that we have here the oldest record of a democratic monarchy in the world. Or it could be that they function similar to the judges did in the book of Judges. But it calls them kings, not judges. And then the last one, this is another list of the chiefs of Edom. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Yeheth, Aholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. So these are probably not people at this part. These are the names of the regions or like the states as we have in our country because these are the names of several people we've seen already. God is the one who raises up and casts down nations and that's what he did for Esau. So I know we're over our time. It's a long section, but what do we get from all this? You have the progeny of Isaac, the children of Jacob and Esau. Lots of bad, some good. And it sets me a good example because Jacob brought his family to God and God accepted him even though he did it imperfectly, which is good because I'm not perfect. And I can't bring my family to God perfectly. And if God in his grace can bless people like Jacob and Esau and Reuben, then why not you? Don't despair over your family. Strive to do your best. Don't shirk your responsibility, but in the end, leave it in God's hands because it's up to him, not you. Put away your idols, change your garments, get rid of the charms, and build an altar in your family. Because the new covenant of Christ is the most valuable legacy that you can leave for your children. So bring them to Jesus and trust that he's going to work it all out in the end.